to our fifth podcast for Thanks for Your Service. I'm David Hall. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian Defence Force. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. In this podcast, we learn about the role of the Office of Australian War Graves and find out about a secret World War II base in Victoria. You may have heard about the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, and today we learn about the Office of Australian War Graves, and we were very fortunate to speak to its director, Ken Cork, who joined us from Canberra. Ken, many thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me, David. Ken, please tell us about the role of the Office of Australian War Graves. Uh, look, we can uh, trace our history back to the formation of the Imperial War Graves Commission back in 1917, which was the predecessor to what is now known as the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Uh, and the commission was formed to create and maintain war symmetry to soldiers of the British Empire who fell during the First World War. Uh, we were originally known as the Anzac Agency back then, uh, and in those days, member governments of the commission paid an annual fee to cover the cost of maintaining the graves of their war dead, and the Australian High Commissioner to the UK would always be Australia's representative on the commission. The amount that we paid was in proportion to the number of graves from each country that had to be maintained. And all of the work was undertaken by the Commission. Now, the ANZAC Agency was actually part of the Commission and it was funded from London. Uh, and it, it was responsible for maintenance of war cemeteries, uh, plots and graves in our region, including Papua New Guinea, which back then was an Australian protectorate. Uh, also worthy of noted, in 1922, the Australian government decided to offer commemoration uh, to those who survived the war but died later as a result of their war service. And this is known today as the Program of Official Commemoration for Post-War Dead. Uh, Australia is unique among Commonwealth nations for doing this, uh, and the ANZAC Agency maintained all of those commemorations too, uh, with the Australian Government then providing additional funding to the Commission for this additional work. Now, the mandate of the Commission was expanded to include the graves of uh, Commonwealth casualties in the Second World War in the 1940s, uh, but that's where it stopped which means that any Australian casualty of a later war is not the responsibility of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. So as it stands today, uh, we have over 103,000 war dead commemorated in, in 83 different countries. And we also look after the commemorations of 317,000 post-war commemorations, most of which are located here in Australia. Now, the, the office also acts as an agent of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Can you explain that relationship today and the, office, uh, and the role that your office plays in that? Yeah, sure. Um, by 1975, uh, it became clear that the largest proportion of the ANZAC Agency's work in Australia was maintaining the graves uh, of casualties from conflicts after the Second World War and all of these commemorations of post-war dead. Uh, as a consequence, the Australian Government and the Commission agreed that the ANZAC Agency would become the Office of Australian War Graves and would be funded directly by our Government. Uh, however, the Office would retain the responsibility for maintaining Commonwealth War Graves in Australia Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. And to give it the powers necessary to do this, it was agreed that the office would act as an agent on behalf of the Commission in that region. Uh, now, it's not widely known, but there are 70 Commonwealth War Graves cemeteries here in Australia. Um, most of these are sections within civil cemeteries, the exception being Adelaide River, uh, whereas the entire cemetery is, is a Commonwealth War Graves cemetery in the Northern Territory. And it's here that the casualties of the bombing of Darwin were all finally buried. 
Now, the, worth noting also that there's two additional cemeteries we maintain on behalf of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. One is in Tatura in Victoria for Germans, and, and the other is in Cowra in New South Wales for Japanese. These towns were sites of internment during the Second World War, and the cemeteries contain the graves of those who did not survive until the end of the war. In 2016, you played a major role in the, in the repatriation of the remains of Australian servicemen from the Vietnam War. Can you tell us about that? Oh, certainly, David. Um, but that was a major undertaking for the office, uh, and we'd never done anything like that before. Uh, however, I need to point out it's a common misconception that this was all about Vietnam War casualties, but this is not the case. Um, the background behind all of this uh, centres on the fact that the policy regarding where war dead would be buried can be traced back to the agreements made with the Imperial War Graves Commission in the First World War. Uh, after the Second World War, when we were no longer uh, looking after our war dead under CWGC auspices, the policy not to repatriate the, the remains was not changed. And as a consequence, we now see Korean War casualties buried in the UN Cemetery in Seoul, uh, as well as uh, casualties of other conflicts and wars, such as the Malayan Emergency, buried in various locations in Malaysia and Singapore. And now, also the same approach was taken in relation to servicemen who happened to die in service, so not necessarily a result of war, but perhaps in training or an accident, um, and also their families uh, who may have accompanied the, accompanied the two garrisons overseas. One of those locations was a cemetery located in the former Commonwealth military barracks in Malaysia called Terenda. Um, it was here that the bulk of our casualties from the early years of the Vietnam War were buried, uh, along with servicemen and the dependents who were based in Terenda. Now, by 1970, the Commonwealth Brigade had left Terenda and the base had been turned over to the Malaysian military. Though the cemetery containing the remains of our servicemen was allowed to remain and, and it's been maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission on our behalf. Now, the policy on repatriation remained unchanged up until January 1966, when the government decided that the remains of casualties could be repatriated to Australia at the government's expense. The catch was that this change in policy was not retrospective, meaning that any of those who were already buried would have to remain where they were. Now, there have been numerous requests over the years from families and ex-service organisations to repatriate individuals or groups back to Australia, However, various governments have maintained the policy of the non-retrospectivity of the 1966 decision. Now, it was in 2014, a case was put forward to the government by the family of Lieutenant David Bryan. He was one of the first men buried in the Terenda Cemetery. The basis for this case was that access to the cemetery for the family and comrades was constrained, given that it was now located on an operational military base. And it was this argument that persuaded the government to consider making an exception uh, to this repatriation policy for those who were buried in Terenda. Now, this involved the remains of 27 servicemen, 24 of whom were Vietnam casualties, and also eight dependents. Now, what might be of interest to some listeners is that of the 24 Vietnam casualties buried there, 14 were buried there after the change in policy in 1966 at their family's request. Now, as we now know, in May 2015, the government announced it would offer families the offer of repatriation. Also, as there was only one other casualty of the Vietnam War buried in Singapore whose family would not have had that option, the government extended the offer to his family too. Now, in the end, 33 families made the decision to bring their loved ones home, uh, and they were formally welcomed home at the RAF base Richmond on the 2nd of June 2016. Now, this was a very emotional day for their families and colleagues, as well as for my team in Wargraves, because typically our responsibilities only start after the burial. Um, this was the first time that most of the team had the opportunity to be with the families with whom they had worked for many, many months leading up to the repatriation 
and were able to be with them when they were laying their loved ones to rest. Uh, now, I have to say, for the three who remained in Perinder, uh, my office continues to maintain those graves in a manner befitting the sacrifice made by those men, and will continue to do so. Ken, you also served some 23 years in the Royal Australian Armoured Corps. Can you tell us about a little bit about your journey from being in the Armoured Corps to becoming the Director of the Office of Australian War Graves? <laughs> well, the short answer to this question, David, is without a plan. Um, after 23 years, uh, I found myself in a position where I felt that I'd enjoyed what, had been, what I had been doing, but I wasn't convinced that I enjoyed what I would be doing if I stayed on. Uh, so when I left, uh, I joined a consulting company in the private sector, and I really enjoyed the consulting work. And in some ways, it was like the military with continually changing roles constantly, e even though you were working with the same employer. So it, it kept the job alive for quite a while. Um, however, after eight years, I found myself as a regional manager, and my role was no longer about working with our clients. It was all about revenue targets, profit loss, meeting forecasts, and so on. And I didn't enjoy that so much. Um, through the contacts that I've met through my consulting, I found myself drawn back into the public sector, and I was given a great opportunity to manage a significant construction project here in Canberra, and a job that sort of kept me going for about seven years. Um, it was at that point, uh, I only had a superficial understanding of the work done in Wargraves, and I wasn't even really considering it as a possible future for me. However, one of my former, former Army colleagues looked me up to let me know that the role was becoming available. Uh, and at that time, the government had just approved a $100 million project to build a, a new interpretive centre in Ville Bretonneux in France. Mm. And he thought that given my previous military background, combined with the recent construction experience, it'd probably be a good fit for the role and that I should think about it. So one thing led to another, and now here I am. And as as the director, you're travelling again this week. Where are you off to? So this week I am going uh, to the Sir John Monash Centre in Villers-Bretonneux. Uh, we're on a very, very tight deadline to open the centre uh, before Anzac Day next year. Uh, and there's a lot of work that we have to do with our French con uh, con contractors to make sure we're ready for that date. Where else can people go to find out more about the Office of Australian War Graves? Uh, specifically about the office, the best place is to look on the DVA website. That's www.dva.gov.au. And then click on the section that takes you to commemorations, memorials and war graves, and there's a, a lot of information there. Um, but I should also promote the uh, Commonwealth War Graves Commission's uh, website. It's only recently been upgraded. Um, I can re recommend it highly as a great source of information for people who, who are interested in finding information on where casualties of the First and Second World Wars are buried, or even just to learn more about what work the Commission does. Uh, and the address for that one is www.cwgc.org. Ken, a vital part of Australian military history and as Director of, a, of the Office of Australian War Graves, we really appreciate your time today. Many thanks. You're welcome, David. During World War II, Lake Boga in rural Victoria was the site of a secret Air Force base. Today, the Flying Boat Museum shares that secret with us. Joining us on the line from Lake Boga in Victoria is Daryl Allen, who is the manager of the Flying Boat Museum. Daryl, many thanks for joining us. No worries, David. Quite well. First off, where is Lake Boga? Lake Boga is situated about 300 k's to the west of Melbourne along the Murray River. It's what we call the heart, the heart of the Murray, uh, halfway between Melbourne and Mildura, and. Uh, it's situated about 15 kilometres just short of a little of a township called Swan Hill. And over 70 years ago, during World War II, Lake Boga was a national secret. What can you tell us about that? 
That's right. Back in March the 3rd, 1942, uh, the start of World War II, uh, there were 16 Dutch Catalinas shot up off Broome in Western Australia. It was then that the government realised what they were worth to the war effort, so they needed a safe base inland to repair them, because as the old saying goes, off our shores they were sitting ducks. So March the 3rd, uh, the bombing happened. By the end of March, Qantas had landed on the lake and commissioned this as LBFBRD number one secret base, and that's Lake Boga Repair Depot number one secret base. And it operated right through to the end of uh, the war in 45, and then 46, 47, they had a dispersal sale. So we're actually on the site itself, and we've reconstructed a museum here. It all started by the local Lions Club, who had two members. There were actually 12-year-old children here that used to run around and play around the base, and they decided to recognise that war effort. So in doing so, they found a plane, uh, Catalina, PBY-5, 45 k's north of Swan Hill that was purchased after the dispersal and relocated it back here on the site. It actually was a static display outside from 95 through to about 2008 and now it's been hangered and extensively uh, renovated back to what it should have been. So we have a Catalina, uh, some Jeeps, some engines and a lot. And we actually reconstructed it on the base itself. So we're on the original area where it all operated from. Can you, can you tell us a little about the role of the Catalinas during the war? Yeah, well, the Catalinas, uh, mainly early World War II, were mainly used for reconnaissance and laying of mines. They even flew as far as Hong Kong Harbour to lay mines to keep all the Japanese ships tied up. And uh, that was 42, 43, 44. Uh, the Australian ones were painted black, and that's when they were, were called the Black Cats. And then that was their flight and the insurance that uh, showed up then. They put bombs under each wing, two, four 250s, two 500s or 1,000. And because they could fly for 15 to 17 hours non-stop, they would go out and do bombing raids on the Japanese Zeros while they were refuelling. So they, even though they weren't a big flash fighter plane, they were certainly uh, were used for, for good warfare towards the end when they recognised for their flight times. They only flew at about 250 feet. One reason was to stay under the radar, and the other one was because if a Japanese was to try and attack them, they only had a 25 to 30 calibre gun, and the angle of attack to come down to 250 feet, they couldn't pull out of their dive, so it was a suicide mission. So that's what they mainly done. Um, with reconnaissance, they would go out, land beside a, a destroyer that, say, was shot up, pick up as many troops as they could, and then fly them back home. So... And that's what they've done. And, and yep. in, in terms of the Australian aircraft, where were they mainly based in the north of Australia? Oh, they were mostly up our, up our east coast. Uh, Rathmines was the number one. That, that was the headquarters. We were the number one repair depot. And most of them would be right up around the, around the east coast and across the top of the north, right across as far as Broome and down nearly as far as Perth. So they'd, go, they'd come down here, do their servicing or repairs, and then they'd fly back up north. I mean, there's a, there's a substantial distance between, say, Lake Boga and the north of Australia. So how, how typically would they fly back? 1,500 nautical miles, and they had a 15 to 17-hour range, so they could go non-stop, actually, which was very unusual back in the 40s. And they how, had a very big endurance. And, and how big is the lake, Daryl? The lake is about 15 kilometres circular and a 2.8-kilometre uh, landing strip in any direction. That's why it was picked. It uh, 
from the air, it looks like the old round 50 cent piece, and that's why they picked it. So they could land day or night, any time, didn't matter which way the wind or direction was going. They could land on Lake Pogo. They had 2.8 kilometre strip. Is it, a, is it a naturally occurring lake or man-made? Yes, yes, it's a natural lake. Um, it's actually the end of the Loddon and the Avoca River before it, it used to pool up before it went back into the Murray system. So it is natural, even though it's a perfectly circular. Everybody thinks it might have been done by a meteorite and all this sort of stuff. But uh, no, it's just a natural. 16 foot deep, as I said, about 15 kilometres around. And yeah, works out to be about 2.8 kilometres in any direction. And what can visitors expect when they visit the Flying Boat Museum? When they visit Lake Boga, um, they come into the museum. We have a, uh, a full plane here, a complete PBY-5 Catalina flying boat, which you're able to see. We have a 20-minute DVD, which gives you the overview of the base and the history and how it was constructed and, and all that. And we also have the original underground communication bunker, which is fully operational. It has the old telephone lines and the old telegram machines, the radios and the Morse code. Um, for the centenary of ANZAC, Sunraise Your Amateur Radio Group got it going for us and we can actually transmit out of it. Uh, we got to talk to Turkey for 15 minutes and 350 contacts around the world. So it's fully operational. And uh, apart from the bunker, what's left at the site from its wartime role? At, at the moment, the only thing that's standing visually outside is a generator room. Um, old powerhouse but all the footings and everything for the hangars and the slipways and the uh, communications tower all the bases and everything's there just to be reconstructed because they bashed the concrete that good in the old days that uh, it'll never be removed so we're in the process now in our five year plan of reconstructing a couple of the old um, storerooms and a couple of the hangars so that's what we have to do over the next four to five years and when's the museum open? The museum's open from nine to four, seven days a week. It's only closed Christmas Day and Good Friday. The rest of it is nine to four every day. Uh, have very good staff here. Uh, a lot of them are very enthusiastic in, in what they do. They've got a love for the war and history. And we've also got a, a gentleman by the name of Patrick Dillon who does all our restoration work. So we've got a Willie's Jeep. Uh, Chevy truck, a D2 Caterpillar that t towed the planes around the, to the hangars and all that. And they are all operational. We have about eight or ten engines that are operational as well. Plus we have the only fuselage of a Dornier, which is a German built for the Dutch. Um, it was a houseboat at a Tuca up until 2012. We had floods over here. And so we were very clean, but they walked away from it. So we're just reconstructing that as well, which is a a very rare uh, plane, uh, amphibian plane again. Are there people who worked at the base who are still around today? Yes, we had the 75th anniversary in March and we, uh, we ran an air show. Um, we had 5,000 people turn up for that air show and we had uh, 14 veterans that actually served here. Uh, 12 male and 2 female because it was known as a party base too, actually, because... Uh, there was 800 RAF, 200 RAF stationed here Goodness. during the time. So after hours, because they had no accommodation, they used to truck them on the, in and out of Swan Hill on the back of trucks. Um, they, were, they were civilians after that, so it was renowned for its dances and its uh, markets and 
things and that on the weekends and after work. So it was a pretty good base to work at, I think. And where can people go to find out more about the museum? Yes, go to uh, www.flyingboat.org.au and you can get onto our website and look at it and uh, it'll show you, give you a, 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 quite a good overview of what we've got. And if they're looking for memorabilia or something like that, we'll also be able to buy off the site as well. A fascinating piece of Australian World War II history in, in Victoria. Daryl, thank you very much for your time today. No worries. Thank you, David. That's the podcast for today. We're keen to hear your feedback. That email again is info at thanksforyourservice.net or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Finally, if you're interested in sponsorship or support of this podcast, head to our website or email us. You can also support us via Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com forward slash thanks for your service. Thanks for listening.